So, hi, Stuart. You are the first time on the show. So, what I would like to know first is how you started programming. So, what was your first Hello World? Um, I first started programming in high school with Visual Basic. And oh. then uh, moved on to C++. Okay. And what is your first computer? So, you started at home? So, you had something before or you had to program? Um, mm-hmm. At home, when I was very little, we had some... and. IBM computer that I don't know what exactly what it was. And then we got a Pentium 100 at about the time that I started programming. Oh, so it's not like, you know, history with C64 or ZX. So you started with a modern Pentium. Uh, yeah. And you started gaming or wanted to, you know, to hack something? I, want, I wanted to be a games programmer back in high school, but... But that changed as I grew older and just sort of lost interest in games. Oh, so you game first and then at high school you uh, started with Visual Basic in the hope that you can program some games? Yes. Cool. And how it turned out? So how quickly you found out that Visual Basic is not the best language for gaming? Uh, I think I knew that right from the start, but it was just all that I had available at the time and it was a good thing to learn on. Mm-hmm. And the next step was, so if you started uh, with mm-hmm. C plus plus, add ball and C plus plus at one point, mm-hmm. and, and uh, how how it happened? OpenGL. So you stopped what with Visual Basic and then you uh, moved to C plus plus. Or how it happened? So how was the transition? You had to do this because of school, or you somehow uh, find, found out that C plus plus is you know the great programming language. It was just my own personal interest. So, like, I had to get hold of a compiler because this was sort of didn't have good internet back then. I had to buy the Borland C++ compiler. So, yeah, I didn't have access to any, like, Linux machines or anything like that. So I just sort of was making do with what I had. And what is your first app? My first, as in, like, program or whatever you did with C++, which was more than, you know, Hello World? I can't remember. I definitely wrote Tetris at one point. Hey, cool. Um, So it really worked? Yeah, it worked. And uh, you you just borrowed the algorithm from from somewhere or was just completely your invention? Um, It was completely my invention, I think. Wow. This is remarkable, actually. How long did it took to implement Tetris from scratch with C++? Um, I can't remember. This is many years ago now. Yeah, but was it, what, one year or no, two weeks? Um, it was definitely weeks rather than years. Like, I'd done a fair bit of programming in Visual Basic by that point, so I understood oh. like I understood how to program. I just It was just learning C++ and the Windows APIs to sort of draw stuff, and that was the main the main learning sort of curve for me. Okay, and what was your first commercial application? Um, it was a app for the financial planning industry that was just sort of a CRM okay. type thing. In Visual Basic or C++? Uh, that was in PHP. PHP, okay. So it was yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a few years later. Okay. Um, and um, so you studied computer science, right? Yeah, I studied computer science at Wollongong University. Mm-hmm. 
So you really like programming. So this is what I you know wanted to know. So how you started and what is your road to programming? So uh, the uh, Tetris stuff was before your university, I think, right? Yeah, by the time I went to university, I was already fairly proficient in C++. Like I'd written sort of 3D games in OpenGL. So, I, yeah, I already knew how to program by the time I went to university. Interesting. And uh, what happened, you know, with Java? So how, how you started Java, how you found Java, what was your road to Java? Uh, basically it just, um, seemed like a much better language for writing apps in than PHP. <laughs> so I taught myself Java and then, um, basically got a job using Java. Mm -hmm. Which version was it? You remember which Java version? Uh, 1.5. 1.5. This is, uh, so you already had access to annotations, right? Yeah. So I had annotations. I had generics. I had all the good stuff. Wow. That I never is... really had to deal with 1.4. So, so you are oh, like a Java oh, yeah. youngster. Um, I guess so, but mm -hmm. that's been out for a while now. And what was your first uh, Java application you wrote? Um, it was another commercial one. It basically just trapped, um, it was also in the financial industry, just sort of an accounting type package. But it was it Australia or where was it? Uh, Australia. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 um, when was it? So I assume 2006, 2007, I guess, with JDK 1.5, right? Um, yeah, it probably would have been about 2007, I think. Okay. And was how the climate was in Australia back then? So it was like uh, everything was Java or I have no idea, no? What, what, what happens in Australia, actually, Java-wise? So uh, can you briefly explain, you know, what is Java popular in Australia or... What's what's the deal with Java and Australia in and, and commercial industry? Um, yeah, I think Java is definitely popular in Australia. I think it's popular everywhere for writing um, for writing business applications. Um, mm -hmm. I can't really say if it's any different in Australia to the rest of the world, but in my experience, there's a lot of people using Java. Okay, yeah, it's the same here in Europe, and um, and. Um, if you started with your Java, was it a client-side application with Swing JavaFX or was it server-side? No, it was all server-side. Okay. Using uh, Seam and JBoss 4.2, I think. Okay, so you started, you know, uh, with Java server-side with uh, Java-E-like stack, right? Yes. And um, your first app was PHP and then you transitioned to Java-E. So what was your impression, you know, because usually PHP... Uh, people tell, saying that this is more lightweight and then you had to do some seam. So you liked that or not? Or what was your reaction? Uh, mm -hmm. I definitely liked it. I never really liked PHP because I was a C++ programmer that just sort of got a job writing PHP basically to earn some money. Mm -hmm. But I definitely prefer strongly typed languages. This is interesting. So there was already uh, so a couple of people on the show who had a background in gaming and C++, and they all like Java E. So, uh, so what I assumed is, this is like, you know, Java E is for lazy developers who don't like, you know, to do the hard stuff like C++, C, and therefore they just use Java E. But it seems like Java e is popular among, you know, the C, C++ in low-level developers, and they really appreciate how, how Java E feels like. 
this is a surprise me really on the show. So you are the next one who has background with you know gaming, C, C plus plus, low level programming, and appreciates Java. Yeah, it's, to be honest, it's been a long time since I really did any significant C plus plus programming. Once I sort of started working with Java commercially, then that was most of the programming that I did. Yeah, I had also a similar background. So I started with C++ and then uh, found Java, but it was JDK 1.0. Really like that stick with the server and I'm using Java till now, but uh, I also really like it. So then you stick with Java E? Um, yeah, well, from there, I ended up eventually getting a job with Red Hat. So how, how so, this happened? This is interesting. Um, I was I basically just started contributing to Weld in my spare time. Mm-hmm. And because um, I found it really interesting and it was just more interesting to work on than what I was doing at work. So I basically just started contributing. And then when a position opened up, I applied and got the job at Red Hat. What you did contributed to Weld? Weld, I mean the CDI implementation, right? Yeah. So what you did, so what was your contribution, your very first contribution to Weld? What was it? I don't remember the first one. Some of the stuff... One of my main contributions, though, was performance improvements. I did a lot of work on basically making it start faster and making and improving the runtime performance. So that was, and I also fixed a lot of issues around the um, portable extension API that the 1.0 version had. Because mm-hmm. I also wrote a lot of what turned into, um, well, some of what turned into Delta Spark, like the. Um, some like the XML configuration and a few other things there. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you started at uh, at Red Hat as a Weld full time Weld contributor. Uh, no, I started on the AS seventeen. So when I joined, AS seven was just kicking off. They just don't released Alpha one that supported Servlet, not much else. Mm-hmm. So then for the yeah, my job was full time AS seven. And so a- I implemented Weld, like Weld in AS7, but like the CDI in AS7, but I also did a lot of just the Java E side of AS7. And what do you mean by AS7? Is this the JBoss AIP or what do you mean by AS7? Oh, sorry. J- um, yeah, JBoss Application Server 7. Okay. So what, what turned into Wildfly? Back then, it was we just called it AS7. And how it happened with the Whitefly? So uh, was it like... Whose idea was it? So on how it happened? I just what I just recognized back then that there was like you know uh, name finding at the DevOx Belgium. So you had like a poll: what should be the name of the Whitefly? But uh, who had the idea? Who got the idea? How it happened? You know that? So back then, uh, I don't know who came up with the final name, but I think there was just a thought within Red Hat that JBoss is a lot more than just the application server. So it was kind of confusing to have the application server that everyone was just calling JBoss when JBoss did a lot more than just the application server. So oh. that was why I think they renamed okay. it. So it's more like you know branding on or cleanup, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this was the reason. Interesting. And uh, since then, what you did? At, you stick with JBoss? Um, yeah. So I, then after I after. The application server was released. I ended up writing a new web server. Like I wrote Undertow. Ah. I've, I've mostly been working on that until I guess the last 10 months now where I've been working mostly full-time on Quarkus. 
to be honest, a lot more than full time on Quarkus. Oh, that's yeah. really cool. So you are the guy behind Undertow, right? Yeah. Yeah, cool. And what was your work on on ES7? So you remember the task or what you had to implement or what was it? What you implemented? Um, I did a lot of. I did a bit of everything, but I mostly focused on the Java EE side of things. So mm -hmm. I did CDI. I implemented a big chunk of EJB. I implemented the Corba support, um, the application client, um, just if the and just a lot of just general all the stuff that sort of ties the Java EE components in together. I worked with, okay, as well as a fair bit of the core server. So uh, now it's interesting because in one point of time, Whitefly deactivated pooling of EGBs, which caused uh, performance issues, and you could reactivate that, but it but it was shipped with deactivated pooling. You know why? Um, I think there was just a thought that for a lot of applications that it's hard to come up with a default pool size that sort of makes sense for everyone. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of situations that default pool size will actually cause more performance issues than what it solves. Mm -hmm. So what makes sense for one app might, might, might not make sense for another. And if your EJB is just doesn't, isn't doing expensive work and it's post-construct, then you don't really get that many, much benefits from pooling anyway. Instead, you're dealing with all this extra concurrency with the locks and whatever that's around the pool. So actually, unless your EJBs are expensive to create, you'll actually get better performance without pooling. Um, this made me actually a hero with some projects because uh, I knew that, that if you reactivate the um, pooling again, you, you will gain some performance. So uh, in some clients, you know, I walk in, reactivate, reactivate the pooling, and the application was 20% faster. And everyone said, wow, you, you are an expert. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of. Um, so funny. Um, but uh, regarding the pooling, what I found out is that EGB are usually faster with the pooling and not because something happens in post-construct rather than if EGBs are pooled, or the stops with at inject are injected once per instance. And if the EGBs are not pulled, the injection has to happen, you know, on every request. And this is what uh, makes the uh, not pool component slower. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. But on the flip side, you're also adding in um, locks and the potential for, concur for um, concurrency issues. So if your pool's too, pool's too small, then you can actually get a much bigger performance hit from having a wrongly sized no, pool. No, absolutely. Than Abs what, yeah, absolutely. Than what you can get from being jacked. Yeah, yeah. And from our point of view with the default config, we know nothing about your app. So we can't, it's very hard to sort of guess at what the correct default pool size is for, because we can only ship one size for every application. Mm -hmm. No, um, so I just... Sort of, I'm just asking uh, because in my eyes, uh, CDI one point of time should uh, support pooling as well to come with better performance of uh, you know if there is a if you inject you know highly uh, sorry, a tree of components and then we could kill actually EJBs. But right now uh, CDI doesn't have any pooled scope. So what is your your opinion from the implementation perspective on on that? Um. I think you could do it with portable extensions, I think. Yeah, but... Yeah, you could definitely do it with portable extensions. I think it's something that potentially we could look at standardizing at some point in the future. Exactly. 
This is what I mean. Because then we could, uh, you know, kill EJBs entirely, and having less specs is always good, you know, for yeah, for simplicity. So we don't have to have overlapping functionality between EJBs and CDI, and then we could kill CD, uh, EJBs entirely and focus on CDI, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So for Quark, for Quarkus, I think we're unlikely to do a full EJB implementation because there's just so much stuff in it that people don't really use that much in modern apps. Yeah. But what we'll do instead is take out the bits that people think are useful, like, say, transactions and pooling, and just have separate CDI-based implementations. Yeah, exactly. And there is um, uh, on GitHub, so there's also a funny story, I, I, I recorded an um, online uh, workshop, uh, Java e testing, and just for fun, I compared the performance between request-scoped uh, CDI and EGBs, and EGBs tend to be, I think, 20% or 10% faster, I don't remember anymore. And someone from IBM watched the uh, uh, screencast, couldn't believe that, and um, had created a formal test uh, on GitHub, and the guy called Samo Lisov. So I have it uh, on my blog interview. And it turned out that EGB are the fastest component model because of that. And pooling is not regarding, you know, the new and uh, and uh, garbage collection, rather than pooling because if you inject other components, the injection happens only once. So uh, this was also interesting. And what's why also funny, because uh, sometimes in my projects, architects try to remove EGBs to gain performance, <laughs> and then they make everything slower, which is uh, uh, somehow funny and sad at the same time. Yeah, I, I wonder if that would still be true with Quarkus, because it's using a different CDI implementation where the code that does the injection is basically, it's not using reflection, it's just generated code to do the injection. No. So... Now, now we can focus on Quarkus. So now, no one knows what Quarkus is, right? Our audience. So now the question is: How you started with Quarkus? So what was your road to Quarkus? Who got the idea? Why? What is the background? Um, so basically, it started as just a small team that was looking at what we could do to make basically get a faster runtime that we can take advantage of GraalVM. And basically, we just had this sort of exploration phase that went on for three months where we looked at getting our frameworks running on GraalVM and sort of what what a platform designed for native compilation might actually look like. Mm-hmm. So we sort of had a three-month proof-of-concept phase where we explored all that. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, we pretty much had... A lot of, had Hibernate working and a new version of CDI that compiled directly down to bytecode that was optimized for native compilation and sort of a general platform where we could run simple apps on. Mm-hmm. And that was um, that was the start of it, really. How big was the team? Um, I think it was about eight people. Okay, so it's not that big. Eight, yeah. mm-hmm. No, not that big. Okay, interesting. So the the main idea between Quarkus is to make uh, no, uh, let's say popular or subset of Java E uh, natively compiled with GraalVM to native code, right? Yes, but we also want a really good Java experience as well. Mm-hmm. So it's still we still want to have a really optimized JVM experience. Mm-hmm. So even if you can't take advantage of GraalVM, we still want Quarkus to be a compelling platform. Mm-hmm. Were you somehow involved in Swarm as well, or just uh, at Red Hat you did Undertow and then started with Quarkus? No, I was never really involved in Swarm. Yeah. I submitted one or two patches to it, but that's Mm -hmm. it. 
because um, as uh, you pr- I sent you before a few emails last weeks because I recorded some screencasts about Quarkus, and I found a Quarkus by accident. And uh, I have to say, it is the very first time where I see something different to, let's say, stock Whitefly or stock Payara with significant added value. So usually, you know, all the runtimes like Swarm or Payara Micro or the others, they just repackage existing server, throw away, you know, like domain stuff and make it a little bit leaner. But it added value is for me or my project is actually not existing. And um, for Quarkus, it is uh, an in- even without Growl, there is a really interesting approach, a new approach, fresh approach with, uh, I would say, with significant added value for the projects because what you also did, this is what uh, what I found very interesting, you are separating the uh, base layer, the application server infrastructure stuff, at least is my understanding, from the business logic, which is the runner. So you, um, for, for the listeners, um, what you get is you get a lib folder with the infrastructure code and you get the runner, which is tiny, or let's say 50K, I think, something like this. And it uh, re- references the libraries and com- uh, contains business logic, right? Yes. So, and this so, uh, this is actually uh, sorry for the interruption, but this is uh, like you know f- fat jars with layering, and this is f- f- from the beginning with the old tooling around that, and this is what makes my idea. I don't know whether you read my stuff about thin wars very compatible with my point of view like you know the infrastructure has to be you no know, built once and ever again and we just focus on business logic and this what i found really interesting a complete different approach uh, to java e deployment but the same idea yeah and we actually want to do more stuff with this going forward like ideally eventually we want to get to the point where you can just have your app which is just your business logic and then you can actually use our tooling to generate, to basically have something on a cloud platform where you can update the underlying platform without having to recompile your app or do anything like that. So if there's a CVE or something in Quarkus, you'd be able to just hit a button in OpenShift and generate a new image with the new version of Quarkus without having to recompile your app or change Poms or do any of that sort of thing. So that's something we're working towards. There's yeah. still a lot more we need to do with the tooling around that. And this would be actually the definition of serverless. Um, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. We had um, on my podcast in the previous episodes a lot of discussion about serverless before Quarkus. And my idea was like uh, just have a thin war with Java E business logic, push it to the cloud, and the cloud is a trigger which will reconfigure the servers, do something with the server, and then your application is online. So fully focus on business logic. Your implementation is different, but uh, the same idea. So you could push the business logic. It will cause like, you know, on OpenShift, let's say, a deployment change or config change event, which will re- rebuild your runtime and your application becomes available, right? Yeah. And this yeah, is- that's definitely what we want to get to. Yeah, and this is actually serverless without you know the uh, the disadvantage having to deal with functions which are in larger applications really hard to de- deal with because you get you know a couple of deployments packages uh, deployment units and with Quarkus you can have uh, 
coarser grain units, which are more suitable for business apps, at least in my opinion. Yeah. And um, what the next added value of Quarkus is um, that you get the uh, the native compilation for free, and this actually works out of the box. So I had already Graal VM installed, and I was actually curious what happened. So I recorded a screencast. By the way, only once it worked uh, out of the box, and I cross compiled Quarkus to native image and started the image. It was like twenty max the image, and um, and this image is what happens on my machine on my Mac. I got a native image without any any external dependencies. So this image is self-contained, right? Uh, yes. And now with the next buzzword, what we got here is unikernels, right? So we could actually run this uh, self-contained 20 Mac image uh, on Docker, without Docker, or whenever we like uh, on bare metal just by running it. And this is actually the definition of unikernel, if you ask me. Actually, when I say it's self-contained, it does have a few dependencies. and It needs... Um, there's a few low-level Linux libraries that it needs. I can't remember the complete list off my off the top of my head. Like it doesn't include its own copy of libc or anything like that. Okay, but where are uh, they? Where are the Linux um, dependencies? Well, they'll be in the base image, generally. In the base so image. The, yeah, because so the runner. Uh, when you're talking about, you, sorry. Okay. I, I just run, I just run, you know, the uh, the native image with outside Docker, and it just worked. So I, what I did, I just you know started the native uh, image, which was cross compiled for from GraalVM, and it just worked. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that'll just be on your system. Like it's only if you're running an absolutely minimal Linux system with basically nothing there, like just the kernel, then you'd like have issues. Yeah. But, but for any normal sort of distribution it will just work yeah this is if you have you know uh let, let, let's say centos 7 linux installed then uh it would just work right yes yeah then then i would say i would also classify it as a unikernel idea it has some dependencies on the linux base system but it's not like it is depending on jvm or something like this no yeah but this is i mean this is remarkable Right. This is what uh, I think. What you achieved is you can have eighty percent of Java E, and create a native image which starts extremely fast. So it was like ten milliseconds or something like this, and uh, it's also very small. So um, my measurement was like it is around ten x smaller than comparable Java E image, right? Yeah, and that runner jar isn't compressed either, so you can actually zip it down into. Sorry, the runner. It image isn't actually compressed so you can zip it down smaller if you want to send it over the network to thousands of computers Mm -hmm. so i mean right now it is uh unbelievable what you achieved i would say right um yeah i'm really excited about focus and i think there's still a lot more that we can do with it yeah Uh, sure a lot of plans and uh what's uh what's also good is for my clients this is a Red Hat project, so uh, I hope in one point of time they could actually even buy support, right? Uh, that's the plan, yes, but I can't really comment on the no, time no, frame. No, 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 but uh, yeah. it would be imaginable then they would be able to buy support from Red Hat to run Quarkus, which is not a toy, and they have some, you know, let's say, insurance, because if you were, you know, the only guy 
doing amazing work, what can happen, you know, bus factor or whatever, and then uh, you are no more interested in, in, in on this project and then it will die. But with Red Hat, there is a little bit more, I would say, uh, investment in, in, in future. And also, even if Quarkus will die, your code with a minor modification will still run on stock Java E servers. This is also interesting. So you are not really depending on Quarkus. A little bit if you use this panache, but uh, it, 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 I mean, there, it's not like huge vendor locking, or you will have to refactor the whole application in order to run on Quarkus, right? No, it's still pretty much just following the standards for the most part. Like we don't fully implement them, but we're implementing as much as we can. But there are some things that we just don't feel we can implement and still keep our fast startup speed and the really efficient compilation to native. So, for example, like we don't support CDR portable extensions at the moment just because if you get one badly written extension, it can really just slow down your the whole startup time and it's just not compatible with doing all the CDI processing at build time and then having a separate runtime step. Mm-hmm. Because because the because the extensions can sort of change so much, then you kind of lose the ability to have the uh, if the processing done at build time. I don't think do this is, our- I don't think this is that important because uh, I I think I had never a portable extension in a business app. So all business apps just use you know a subset of CDI, so it's perfectly fine not to support portable extension. I would say. Yeah, and we do have our own extension API. It's just not a standard one. So most of the stuff you do with portable extensions, you can still actually do with Quarkus. You just have to write a specific Quarkus extension. Mm-hmm. Who got up with the name Quarkus? You know it? Um, I don't know who came it up. We have we had a big list, and I'm not sure who actually proposed it. Okay. But basically... But yeah, there was a big list of potential names that we all came up with and it got whittled down and this was the one that everyone liked the most. What struck me, which was which is actually a great idea, and uh I will borrow it in, in one point of time. So Quarkus is generated the uh example sample project not with Maven archetype, rather than you created a plugin which is able to generate Quarkus uh bootstrap code. And this is genius because um, I also have Java E8 essential archetype in Maven Central. The problem with that is it always checks, you know, the Maven Central and it can take forever or so, you know, nothing is downloaded. It is just slows down the whole thing. And your plugin is very quick. So you just say, you know, Quarkus colon, I think, create or something like this. And it just uh, creates the whole setup. And... um I mean, who got the idea? This is uh, I really like it. So it is a uh, way better than than Maven archetype approach. Um, so the one of the big advantages that that has is that all that code is just sort of not tied to Maven. Maven's just basically uh, like an entry point to our CLI library. So we're planning on adding a lot more CLI based tools, and you'll be able to both use Maven to run it or just you have a sort of more traditional CLI as well. But we definitely didn't want to go down the archetype route just because there's just too many limitations that you can't do nearly as much with them. Yeah. I um, In one of my current projects, I created an archetype and found out that Maven is, archetype is not very good in refactoring. So you cannot rename, you know, deep package structures, one of the limitations. 
you could do some hacks with Groovy, but this is just a hack. But uh, yeah, so this was actually interesting, and uh, and you can use you no know, one plugin for all. So you can use the plugin for create, then you have one plugin for build, and uh, the same plugin for build and the same uh, plugin for dev. And um, this is really great for developer experience. So uh, you don't have to remember a lot. You just have to know, you know, Maven Quarkus colon and then the command, which the developer experience is also great. So uh, who, no, uh, the, there are lots of developers right now in team. Who is the product manager that, you know, has such a focus on developer experience? Or, it, um, that, or, was, or was it obvious for you all that it, it has to be easy and, you know, and lean? That was something that was always part of our brief, like, in the proof of concept was we needed develop like we needed to have a really good developer experience. Are we talking about developer joy? So hot reload was actually one of the things that our initial proof of concept had to be able to support. So initially I was looking at doing it with fake replace, which is another library that I've wrote that does sort of lets you replace classes in a running JVM without dropping the class loader. But because Quarkus was restarting so quickly anyway, we didn't actually end up needing that. So, and then, so you're reloading everything? Yeah, it just drops the class loader and reloads it. But it only drop it tends to only drop a very small sort of part of the app because it's just what's in your current working directory is the only bit that gets dropped. Everything else stays around. Mm-hmm. And because it sort of starts up so quickly that we found that even with larger apps, there was sort of no real gain in attempting to to do anything more than that. Yeah, and for the listeners, what you can do with Quarkus, you can say Quarkus colon dev, and it would just build a system and watch for changes. And on every uh, browser get request, it will reload the Quarkus to the current version, right? Yes. So it actually will check and see if any files have changed, and then it'll compile in the background, transparently swap it all out, and then that request will see the new app. So it's kind of like a PHP-like development experience where you just edit your code and hit refresh and it's all there. Mm-hmm. What's also interesting is the uh, concept of Quarkus extensions. So um, it is also fully integrated with the plugin. So what you can say, I think Quarkus colon list extensions, and then it will list all extensions are currently available right now. And then you can add the extension. So what I was curious is what happens behind the scenes. And uh, what happens is you add a reference to POM, and then after rebuild, you will also find the reference in manifest MF of the runner. Uh, is it right? Is, is this what happens? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes. my follow-up question is, if I would just add a reference to a library in the POM without using this add extension, will the same happen? If I know, we'll know what which library is actually needed? Uh, yes. If you have libraries in your POM, they just get automatically copied into the lib directory and there'll be a class path reference to them so the manifest mf is automatically generated right yes the plugin generates that and this is actually really decent so uh if you have let's say somehow simple libraries it will work if the libraries using a lot of uh, reflection properly the native compilation will be affected but the standard quarkus will always work right so i could have regardless which complex libraries and um the the quarkus runner will run but the native compilation, because of ground limitations, could fail. Is this right? Yeah, that's right. So if you, and in that case, you'd need to write an extension that um, 
sort of worked around the crowd limitations. Yeah, but this is also a clean concept, you know. You can say add whatever you like to the POM XML, and whatever you you did, it will end up in the lib, which is the for me is like the immutable layer or immutable infrastructure layer. And then the runner will automatically use that. And why this is so important? Because what I did as a proof of concept, I created an immutable Docker image with all the lib uh, quarkus, um, and, and then uh, used um, the runner in uh, image which inherits from the immutable image. And this looks exactly the same what I did with all the other war applications with thin wars. So it's, this is pretty, pretty much the same approach, which is perfect for clouds, for all kinds of clouds. Yeah, def like that's definitely something that we're aiming for. Like you can you can actually tr produce a traditional fat jar as well. There is a setting in the plugin, but by default we want the um we use the libjar approach just because it lets you have that layered approach. But do you have any idea what would be you know the case where you would really need the traditional fat jar? Do you have any idea? So what would be the use case for having a fat jar? I think it's just personal preference. Like if you, you might just sort of find it easy to deal with one file or it's, it's sort of, for us, it's quite easy to generate because the way the plugin works is the output. There's no sort of that lib, uh, lib directory arrangement. It's just sort of something that comes out right at the end of the processing. It's not really tied to the core quarkus functionality in any way. So we could actually generate any kind of output that we need to. No, I know uh, that you can do this, but for me, it was always, I saw, you know, a lots of talks about fed jars and Uber jars on conferences. And I never got the use case at my clients in business apps because you usually always had a Docker or visualization or something. And in my eyes, fed jars or make only sense if you don't have Docker. So let's say when you can, cannot separate between the infrastructure and the business logic, if you have uh, containers, in my eyes, the fed jars do not make any sense except you are building, you know, client apps like uh, batch jobs which are running on desktops, for instance. Yeah. So that's um, that's why the the fat jars aren't the default, but you can still use them if you want them. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I just wanted you know to ask your opinion whether you see a killer use case for fed jars i cannot see any so i'm always curious i'm Not always really, asking yeah. and no one could provide me a you know and a nice uh sample what, what is the killer use case of fed jars or uber jars i ask on conferences after conferences before conferences and never got an answer and uh yeah so i also asked you but i get the same answer you could use it but uh no one knows why so I like the lip uh, the the lip approach a lot and as a default this is i would say the right default default setting so it what also makes the build faster because you don't have to build the fat jars a lot faster to just copy a library than it is to um build a new zip file this is the next thing so if you have a no large zip file you have to zip everything over and over again or so just a fraction changed and not only build you will have to upload your the whole stuff to the clouds and with uh, Quarkus, you have you can upload, you know, your lib folder once to the cloud, keep it in a private Docker registry or on OpenShift in a registry, and then just ship whatever changed. So it makes absolute sense in my eyes. Yeah, you don't only need to update the the um, lib directory if you've added a new library or changed a version or 
something like that. If you've just changed your business logic, you can just ship the runner jar and that's it. Yeah. And uh, the only thing is uh, what you can run issues into. So what I look at the manifest MF and I believe there are versions numbers in there. So it won't be easy to upgrade to Quarkus 13, let's say, because the runner will like to see the old versions, right? Um, at the moment, yes. That's something we're actually actively looking at is what the upgrade experience is going to be like. Like at the moment, if you just updated your POM, when you like rerun the plugin, it will generate a pointing to the new version. Mm -hmm. So, and you actually would need to rerun the plugin anyway, because you want the new version to actually generate the extra byte code that goes into that runner jar. Because when it does the processing, it will need to you'll need to sort of it needs to be processed with the same version that it's actually running with, because otherwise you'll probably get incompatibilities and it will all fall over. Mm -hmm. So okay. what, what it actually does for it like is that at startup, it's when you all the all the processing has actually already been done. So passing web.xml or reading annotations that all gets done as part of the plugin. And that gets translated into bytecode. So then what's actually in the runner is just the set of instructions to bootstrap the service without actually having to do any processing of annotations or XML or anything like that. Mm -hmm. one, appro one approach would be, you know, to to uh, strip the versions and just put a um, manifest or version info to the lib folder and, and, uh, and to say which version is it. And then it could work or it could break, depends on you know whether will, the versions are backward compatible or not, right? It will most likely break. Okay. Because because the barcode that's gen like the code that's generated as part of that processing will be sort of highly tied to the version of Quarks in use. Like if you change a method signature or something, then that can potentially impact the um yeah the compatibility. So we we want you to generate the um do the processing with the same version that actually it's running with. But um, let's say in, in traditional Java, let's say we have JAX or S21, and if uh, REST Easy or, uh, or Jersey come with new implementation or new version, minor version, it will still work because uh, we are mostly relying on the API. You could have similar approach in Quarkus where you can say, okay, the implementation can change, but not the signatures, right? Uh, yeah, we could. We're not. We'll have to look at how we um how we manage that going forward. Mm -hmm. But something that might be an issue there is if the if say there's a bug in the actual processing that you need the then to get that fixed, you need to actually rerun the processing in the plugin no matter what. Mm -hmm. So, like in general, if you've upgraded the version, you're always going to want to use the new processor. Mm -hmm. And uh, the immediate idea I got, what you could also do with your plugin is just to create from all the libraries in the lib folder one jar. So you have one jar, you know, the runner, and the other jar, you know, the image. Yeah, we could definitely do that. That's That would be fairly simple. Yeah, because this is even, even nicer because then you can, you know, FTP or whatever your uh, image to somewhere and not, you know, a couple of files. Even the Docker building would be easier and faster. And then this could be an idea. Yeah, that's definitely something we can look at. That would that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And what I also thought about, so what I wanted to do is, 
at the beginning. I saw Quarkus and your def, the uh, Quarkus.dev, like the hot reload. What I think what would be great is uh, that Quarkus is able to actually reload the browser. So what I thought about is to implement the, how it's called, I think CDP, Chrome Developer Tools Protocol, something like this, that uh, write an extension that Quarkus will be able to reload the browser. And why I'm, why I'm thought about that? Because I do also a lot of you know HTML, web components, JavaScript stuff. And if Quarkus would be able to reload the browser, so other way around, there would be the best possible no developer experience because right now I use browser sync to reload the browser and I could use Quarkus on the other side. But uh, having everything in one thing could be really great. So um, would be the right... So how to approach it? I think would be a Quarkus extension the right thing to do? I think not, right? Because Quarkus um, extension will end up being part of the structure. I will have to somehow hook in into your replace process, right? Yeah, so we actually have an API for that. But mm-hmm. the quest, the only issue that you might have with it automatically refreshing is if it sort of auto-refreshes code that isn't complete yet and you'll get compilation failures. So I don't know how you deal with that sort of... Because I don't think you'd really want, as soon as you start coding and save something, you mm-hmm. get an error shop popping up because your code wasn't 100% complete. So- um what I would rather do is to, uh, to watch HTML, CSS, and JS changes, and if I do something this, the browser will reload, and uh, on demand either I will trigger, you know, via REST, your reload process, or not. So way simpler than you think. So I would just focus in my plugin just on HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And if you just hack JavaScript, uh, Quarkus will notify the change in JavaScript and just reload the browser, nothing else. And if my JavaScript needs your REST endpoint, it will hit the endpoint, and then your tooling will decide whether to reload the bytecode or not. Yeah, well, we could definitely do that. That's, I guess my only real question is if that sort of actually belongs in Quarkus or if that's... Because I thought a lot of people do that using basically running a Webpack um, server with its hot reload mode enabled and using it to proxy back to back to sort of the Java application. Yeah, but uh, this Webpack is getting, I would say, at least in my world, less and less popular because the web standards are more and more powerful, so you don't need that much processing, at least at least not in enterprise projects. So in most enterprise projects, we just use modern ES6 without any NPM, so it's just nothing. And uh, Quarkus is actually small enough that you can create, you know, uh, a bundle which comprises HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and Quarkus, both in one place. Okay, then, yeah. Well, like, that would definitely be something that would be good to have. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm not really a UI programmer, so I don't actually know what makes the most sense from a workflow point of view because it's not something I really do mm-hmm. very much. I would, I would, if I have some time, I would just take a look and you know at the CDP. How hard is it just to tell browser, please reload now? Nothing else. And then, you know, how to hook in this into Quarkus. So Quarkus will have to, to watch HTML, CSS, and JavaScript files as well and then notify my stuff. And this would be set. So this would be, this is just the idea I got immediately with, uh, as I saw Quarkus. Because right now I use browser sync outside. And then if uh, the browser sync reloads my JavaScript stuff and t- calls a server. And the issue you get there, you have to install, you know, the uh, course filter on the server. 
And in order, otherwise you get, of course, exceptions. And if everything were within Quarkus, this could be an interesting, at least for prototyping. Just an idea. So it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could definitely look at doing that. That's that's the sort of thing we really want to look at doing is just making the developer experience as good as possible. Yeah, and this is, and this is I think, developer experience is widely underappreciated in the enterprise world. This is what I never got. If you look on some frameworks, I don't, would like to mention now but uh it is like it looks like you know i would say nuclear reactor and uh, and it is just does crud behind the scenes in in all possible things and and quarkus is uh i would say very pragmatic and very simple code and um by by accident what you are doing with quarkus for instance uh what you're proposing is um add inject without private otherwise we get trouble with uh with the native compilation, and I always did that in my Java E projects because this private for add inject doesn't make any sense. It's a way easier to test because my unit test can just uh, automatically replace all all references and mock them out. So it's way easier to test. So uh, it's also so the your Quarkus code looks almost like my Java E code. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah, and you asked me a couple of questions via email. You remember them? in my screencast, why I removed the plugin. Do you remember the questions? Would you like to ask the questions yeah. right now? Why in your screencast were you deleting the uh, Quarkus plugin from the build? Yes. So um, this was the first uh, screencast, and what I was curious is um, how how much magic is there involved and what happens behind the scenes. And what interests me, can I just do you know the same with just Maven Clean install without any plugins? So is it possible, let's say, to create the POM XML with archetype, not with your tooling, and will it still work? And uh, the result is it does work because in subsequent uh, podcasts, I didn't use it anymore. And I think this is very important for enterprise projects because if the perception is that uh, in order to use Quarkus, you have to use always fancy plugins and so forth, it will die. But if the message is, it is like, you know, you can use the plugins to enhance the experience, but they are not mandatory. You can still use whatever you like. You can go, you know, with VI, create your Quarkus project, and it will run. It's not as convenient, but it will do. This is actually the reason why I did it. Well, you still need some form of tooling to do the processing at some point. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be tied to Maven. At some point, we'll probably actually have just a standard command line task we could run to sort of quarkify an app but it still does need some processing done at some point yeah because that's where the build that's what actually creates the app yeah so i would have to run maven build to in order to create you know these specific quarkus deployable right yes yeah and uh what i do in my current project is the following so my POMs in Java E are very thin. So there is never face-safe plugins or Surefire plugins. Everything is out. And um, so I would say more than 50% of my project are actually running on OpenShift. And on OpenShift, we have a Jenkins file. And this uh, Jenkins file contains the, uh, the processing instructions. So what I will do in my project in Quarkus is, so the build advice would be actually, is this mandatory to have on, on the Jenkins pipeline in order to build the application and developers could do whatever they like. But for me, it is very important to understand what happens behind the scenes. It means I will have unit tests, integration tests, and so forth. And the, the Quarkus would be built with Quarkus built on Jenkins. 
and uh, you know, and on the on the developer machine, they could use Quarkus built or not, but uh, it doesn't have to be in the POM. So what we do, we clearly separate the build process from the developer process. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah, I can I can understand. I can understand that. Yeah, because in some of projects, if you're dealing with external companies, it's like the POM comprises 500 plugins and no one knows what they are doing. This is the issue. It's not like an issue in your with your Quarkus plugin rather than every developer has a set of plugins. And uh, for me, it is very common to look at POM, which comprises, no kidding, 2,000 lines of code in POM. And I've asked what the plugins are doing. No one knows it anymore. So uh, what I do in project, I try to delete as much as possible. And just focus what we really need, you know, in order to develop the stuff. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and um, also uh, because Quarkus is, I would say, modular, so the build can be run whenever you like. You could put, you know, the Quarkus build in Visual Studio Code, for instance, and keep it completely out from Maven, so it will still work. So this was what why I did it in my screencast. Yeah, the the build is definitely not tied to Maven, so. Yeah. Yeah, potentially we can write extensions for different IDEs to just run it directly from the IDE without having Maven involved at all. Yeah. And uh, you, you ask other questions as well? Um, I can't actually remember what it was. I thought that I have one feedback as well, as you can search for the questions, but uh, the feedback is, do you use REST Assured for the unit tests or system tests? This is what I never do. I never use REST Assured in my project, and the reason for that is, if you are in microservice environment and you have uh, uh, system tests, which REST Assured does, I usually use REST Easy or um, Jersey. Usually Jersey because there's less issues with uh, HTTP connection pooling. And the reason being is, if you if you test your code with Jax REST, what you can do, you can copy and paste the test, put it to another microservice. And you have the communica communication layer completely reused. And rest assured, you can you can just use it for testing, nothing else. So because you cannot ship, you know, rest assured in production, or you shouldn't. So this is the reason why I actually never use rest assured. Okay. This is the the feedback I can give you. So um, and uh, yeah, but anything else is a remarkable tool. So I will really. Usually, I'm not very interested in alternative runtimes to Java E because something like Whitefly, uh, Tommy, Payara, or, or Open Liberty, they, they, they work really well. They are extremely fast. But the first time I saw something with added value, which is the native compilation, and it really starts quickly, and I already see a few cases where I could use Quarkus in, on my clients. So in one, one particular project is a kind of load balancer with a little bit JaxRS and uh, and CDI, so this could be used. And in other project, we have like big data processing, like batch batch jobs. I could, I think Quarkus could be interested interesting as well. Okay, yeah, well, it's Quarkus is going to have a lot of work done over the next twelve months. Likewise, <laughs> we work towards a one point release. So, like, what's there now will be expanded upon a lot. Mm -hmm. So, hopefully. We'll never, we'll never sort of implement a full Java e application server just because there's a lot of stuff there that isn't really relevant to modern apps. But hopefully, we'll sort of be able to handle all the use cases that a Java e app server could handle, even if it might not be quite the same way. Absolutely, 
And could you also use Quarkus as a command line tool? For instance, what I what I usually like to do is to create a small tools for automation on my uh, local machine with Java. So could you misuse Quarkus to, as a command line tool which kicks something in? So is it possible? Um, not right now due to a bug, but it's definitely going to be possible maybe in the next release or the release after I think should be. I think it should be fixed in the next release. But yeah, you can definitely write command line tools. Well, we'll be able to write command line tools with it as well if you want. Cool. And then compile them down to native. Yeah. This would be a killer use case in my case. So I have lots of Java automation processes and uh, I would like to replace them with native commands and this could be an interesting option. Yeah, we're definitely going to support that. And uh, potentially we might have our own Quark CLI that's compiled down to native so you can say create project will just be a native command that you can run very fast. Mm-hmm. And um, what is on your roadmap? So, you, so or what is coming in the next releases, or what is the best uh, possible case for Quarkus? What do you would like to achieve? And yeah. So one of the big things we're going to be working on over the next few months is how we're going to do our sort of community support. So at the moment, when you like list extensions, it's only showing the core ones that are part of the main code base, but we want to make it really easy to contribute extensions and sort of have them have them be easy to discover and easy to view their documentation and just easy to include them in your project. So that's a big one. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there, do you need support from the community? So how the community can reach Quarkus or you or, you know, what are the references? Um, so we're not, all this stuff isn't quite ready yet. But in the next few, well, I guess the next month, hopefully, we will actually have it have it ready and we'll sort of, we do have like some guides for like an extension author's guide, but we also want to improve the um, improve the tooling around that as well. Mm-hmm. But what I meant is how the community can provide you feedback or, you know, commit. Uh, we have a, we have a developer list, mm-hmm. which is. I'll put it in the show notes, quarkus.io, I think. Yeah, it's a Google group, Quarkus Dev. Uh, it's, I think it's a Quarkus Dev Google group. So, and uh, the last question I have, uh, will it be particular OpenShift Quarkus integration or what? what's planned there? So something happens on this front or? Um, yes, we definitely are going to try and make the OpenShift experience be as smooth as possible. Um, exactly what form that's going to take is not 100% certain now, but mm-hmm. that's definitely something that's going to be improved over the next few months. So, perfect. So, how how the listeners can reach you on Twitter, GitHub, and whatever you have, blog? Do you have some references? Uh, um, yeah, so Twitter, I'm Stuart W. Douglas, and same with GitHub. Okay, cool. So, thank you, and... Um, I would try to ping you in a few months and see what happened with Quarkus, right? Okay, looking forward to it. Yeah, perfect. Thank you.